Welcome to the Judge John Hodgman Podcast. I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. With me, as always, the great Judge John Hodgman. How are you, Judge? Hi. <laughs> Wait, what does that voice mean? <laughs> Are we starting off starting off all our episodes with a confusing voice from here on out? I just realized that I did that. That's the voice of... Of Morrissey. Morrissey. Well, close. Well, actually, kind of, yes, I hadn't thought about it that way. I, it's the voice of Moriarty from the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock. Oh, sure. When, when he introduced, when you first see him at the pool, and now I have to, I forget who that actor is, so I have to look it up. Sherlock. Andrew Scott. <laughs> And he goes, hi. <laughs> it's one of the most hilarious and creepy moments in television history. Hi. But we were just talking about some of the greatest uh, detectives of literature before, uh, before we started this podcast proper. Were we not, Jesse? You uh, confess that you have read over 15 Hardy Boys? I've read probably, I think, I think a solid 20 Hardy Boys and five Nancy Drews. And I'm going to throw on top of that... Five to seven, Tom Swift and his flying labs. Really? Now you're going yeah. into that's a deep cut in American juvenile I used to literature. Sometimes, I don't know if this is allowed, but uh, I sometimes would go to Aardvark Books, which is actually still there on Church Street mm-hmm. in San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, not far from my childhood home. And uh, I would just sit in the children's section and read an entire Hardy Boys book. <laughs> And as you walked out of there, you would just lean over to the person behind the counter, probably the grad student, and go, and just, I just stole from you. <laughs> and you'll never prove it. Because the Hardy Boys are made up, and you can't prove that you stole words because you read them. Well, Judge Hodgman, we've got a ton of docket cases to Well, that's why to. I'm here in these chambers. Okay, great. Megan writes, my husband and I have an intractable dispute. Hopefully we'll be able to attract it for you two. He falsely claims that pizza must have a red tomato-based sauce. Mm-hmm. Without red sauce, he argues, it is not a pizza, but merely gourmet flatbread. I say, consider the Pizza Bianca. Of course. Or the Noble Barbecue Chicken Pizza. No. Are they not pizzas? Well, mm. That said, we're Midwesterners, so what the heck do we know about pizza? Can a pizza be considered a pizza if it does not have tomato sauce on it? Jesse, I have strong feelings about this. Can you guess what I am going to rule? Uh, Don't be a dope. Not you. that's right. Uh, That's your rule. I presume that's your ruling. (laughs) Uh, yeah, of course, don't be a dope. It is true that the classic a pizza pie has a red sauce. And in fact, sometimes you can have a, a red sauce above the cheese and that makes it a tomato pie. Uh, that's what my Uncle Jim told me in Philadelphia. And while things are subject to regionalism, because right now there's probably some pedant going, that's not a tomato pie out there. Maybe that's Moriarty. That's not a tomato pie. That's or why he's Morrissey. my. That's oh, why, yeah, or, that's not a tomato pie. That's not a tomato pie. You're hurting me again. Well, many nemeses out there are probably saying that's not a tomato pie, and I, I believe these things are regional and regionally defined. But in the 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 cradle of pizza civilization, as far as I am concerned, is New Haven, Connecticut, where I went to <laughs> college. I think everyone agrees on that point. Continue. Are you being sarcastic, or are you being? Or are you that being the cradle concerned? of pizza civilization is New Haven, Connecticut, Ameri- where you went to college? Amer- 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 American pizza. Some of the earliest Italian-American pizza parlors in the United States were in New Haven, Connecticut. 
Frank Pepe's okay. and Sally's are iconic American apiz parlors. Uh, and they make brilliant uh, pizza pies still in coal-fired ovens that are... Uh, you, you're, there's a line around the block 24 hours a day, even when they're closed. Uh, and um, they're spectacular. And one of the signature pizza pies in the New Haven pizza canon, which is very influential to all the East Coast pies, is uh, the white clam pizza, which is a, a clam pizza uh, without a single uh, hint of tomato near it. And that is, in without doubt, a pizza. It is, uh, I'm going to give you the ingredients now. According to Frank Pepe's, where I've actually never been to Sally's. They're next door to each other in New Haven, Connecticut. But I've only ever been to Pepe's. And I liked it. It is, uh, uh, white clam pizza is number one in America. All right, see, there you go. A website said it. Made with fresh shut clams, garlic, olive oil, and grated cheese on a charcoal colored crust. And it's an amazing thing to have. And there are many, many different kinds of what are called white pizzas that uh, that don't have any tomato sauce on them at all. And there's no question that they are pizzas. They come from the same Italian-American a pizza parlor tradition. So uh, your boyfriend, is it boyfriend? Husband. Husband is Husband. wrong. Husband is wrong. Consider your dispute tracted. Darla writes, <laughs> this is a docket question because honestly, I don't know who the defendant is. My husband and I live in a building that has three units. We inhabit the lower level, another family lives upstairs, and another group lives in an apartment attached by a breezeway. What's a breezeway? Uh, A breezeway? That sounds like a part of a ship. No, it's it's like a, a walkway between buildings. Are you sure it's not where the bosun lives? We inhabit the lower level, another family lives upstairs, another group lives in an apartment attached by a breezeway. So my guess would be that there's a walkway to a to an outbuilding of some kind. Mm-hmm. My association of Breezeway is and shall always be with the Grand Union Motel in Saratoga Springs, New York, where my wife and I, and then my wife and young daughter and I, spent a couple of long weekends with our other friends, going to go to see the horses race around. But mainly, we went to the Grand Union Hotel um, because the um, Jeffrey McDonald uh, and his and his wife, uh, um, whose name I should remember, but of whom he is accused of and imprisoned for murdering in the uh, uh, and was the subject of the sort of seminal true crime book, Fatal Vision, uh, that we were very into at that time in the 1990s, uh, stayed there with his wife. That couple stayed there at one point on vacation, was mentioned in the book. So it was a weird true crime pilgrimage. And they had a, 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 a spring, a natural spring. That's why they call it Saratoga Springs. The Right in the middle of the courtyard of this motel. And it was a true motor hotel. Like the uh, you, you drive in, check in at one office and then walk around uh, to the door. You know, there were a bunch of doors like in the Bates Motel. You would go into your room that led directly onto this courtyard. In the middle of the courtyard was one of many natural springs in Saratoga Hotel that just burped up fart water 24 hours a day. (laughs) You were expected to get your plastic pitcher from your room and fill it up with this natural, highly mineralized water and bring it back to your hotel and room. And then you would go to bed watching um, (laughs) The Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn, as I remember doing one time. This really dates me. (laughs) And then in the middle of the night, you would wake up and you would be like, why does... Why, why does my room smell like rotten eggs? Oh, I guess I'll never solve that mystery. I guess I'll have a glass of this delicious fresh spring water that has now turned weirdly and uncannily brown. It was a good time. But between... So some rooms, 
this is a long story, but uh, it's a great, and it's a great motel, Grand Union Motel, Saratoga Springs, and there there would be um, a a line of rooms and then a break, and you you could walk between two buildings to get to the other side of the building to go to the line of rooms on the other side of the building, and that walkway between the two buildings that was covered was called a breezeway, so there. Well, I think that is how Saratoga Springs, Florida came to be known as the cradle of the American breezeway and the cradle of American fart water. I'm talking about Saratoga Springs, New York, just so you know. Oh, New York, excuse me. (laughs) And also birthplace of the pizza. Okay, so anyway, breezeway. All of us in this apartment... Oh, is Darla still talking? I apologize. Hi! All of us have separate entrances, but we share garbage cans, and the garbage situation is a hot mess. Mm-hmm. One, somebody is not using garbage bags, but rather putting household trash straight in the can. This is disgusting. If it's windy and the can blows over, pieces of soggy, gross garbage and coffee grounds end up all over. I am the only person who cleans it up. And we do Two, know it gets win- we do know it gets windy because they got breezeways all over the place. Yeah, we got to put those breezes somewhere. Yeah. Two, someone else keeps putting their garbage bags straight out to the curb, sans can. Three, I am the only person to put the garbage cans out through an unwieldy passage. I could make my husband do it too, but to me, this is beside the point because that won't address my neighbor's behavior. Judge Hodgman, is there a way to address this that doesn't involve potential false accusations about who's doing what or leave me feeling like a passive-aggressive jerk? Seems impossible to me. I can't come up with a single solution that doesn't involve accusing people of things, Judge Hodgman. That's why I have to defer to your wisdom on this one. Here's what you do. Take a sharp knife. Go through the breezeway. Carve into their door. I know it's you. (laughs) (laughs) Then go upstairs. Carve into their door. I also know it's you. (laughs) <laughs> and then and then do an Al Madrigal special get a pound each of peeled deveined shrimp and hide the <laughs> hide the raw shrimp just shove the raw shrimp under their door <laughs> I think that's probably the best solution or maybe you could leave a note out by the garbage cans the thing is what is the what is the threshold for intervention. So let's walk through here. Does this deserve intervention at all? Does this cause a problem that can and should be resolved for Darla and her husband? Or is Darla and her husband just up in everybody else's business? So here's number one. Someone's not using garbage bags, putting household trash straight in the can. It's disgusting. I agree with you. If it's windy and the cans blow over pieces of soggy gross garbage and she's the only one. So all right, that's if she's not misrepresenting and, and the garbage cans are occasionally being blown around in the breezeway, then that is a hardship for her. Someone else keeps putting their garbage bag straight out to the curb sans can. Number two, we're just, that's not an issue. As long as they're being collected, I don't see why that's your, a problem for you, Darla. Three, I'm the only person to put the garbage cans out through an unwieldy passage. Maybe that's the breezeway we're talking about. I bet you it is. Now, it could be some kind of uh, like underground route. That's true. Like a tunnel? Yeah, maybe she lives in Disneyland where they have a network of underground tunnels where cast members move from place to place. 
I was thinking more like a Zeta drug gang type tunnel, like a like an El Chapo situation. Oh yeah, maybe maybe she lives in a bolt hole. Yeah, and she's got a motorcycle on tracks. It sounds like an exciting life that Darla is living with her gross roommates or breezeway mates. It's dangerous to traffic drugs across the um, Minnesota. Can't wait. No, where does she live? She doesn't say. I ain't gonna assume it's the uh, like the uh, maybe Minnesota Canada border. So it sounds as though she is the only person who actually drags the garbage cans out through the breezeway and puts them out on the street. And then occasionally, when it's windy, they blow over, and the person who's putting raw eggshells in their and their rotting shrimps directly into the can goes all over the place and she's the only one who cares to clean it up. So it sounds like she's living with uh, horrible uh, uh, garbage people uh, in every sense of the word or young people who don't know any better. So let's just presume for the sake of argument that these are young people who haven't uh, yet lived in an apartment out in the world long enough and that they know how to do it properly. I think that it would be perfectly reasonable to just write a kind note saying, dear neighbors above the trash cans, um, uh, if you are going to put trash in the trash can, uh, please put it in a plastic bag for the reason that is obvious. It's We live in Hurricane Alley and three to five times a week, uh, the lawn gets covered with shrimps from your unbagged garbage. Signed, me, the one who knows what you did. I mean, one. I mean, my presumption is that maybe her neighbors think like, uh, "Oh yeah, you know, uh, uh, Darlene takes the trash out, and I trim the hedges." Like they think there's some kind of unstated understanding of how the whole building works that involves uh, Darlene's job being uh, doing this stuff because Darlene has always done it. Uh, and yeah. I'm not saying that's fair or just. But I think it's hard to say that uh, uh, her doing this stuff every week uh, is grounds for her complaining that no one else does it. Well, I mean, the thing is, we don't know. Does she live in a co-op of some kind where they all own the buildings and then they they split up household chores and, and building wide chores among the three of them? None of the none of the, or do they are they tenants and there's a landlord who should be hiring a superintendent to take care of the garbage or whatever there's not none of this is none of this is clear and we could speculate all day long but maybe you know, she I could hate just to be knock so on their door and say hey maybe we could figure out a plan for the garbage <laughs> how about uh, that yeah she does not appear to have taken that step she has not stated what steps uh t- she has taken at all and the only reason that i suggest a note rather than knocking on the door is the knocking on doors is scary <laughs> in a three unit building. She's got to know these people. It's not like it's a 50 unit building in there. Uh, and there's 500 people to know. I defer. You know what? I defer to the bailiff. You should probably speak to your neighbors and say, there's a problem with your disgusting garbage. That's why I, that's why I carved that threat into your door last week. You're really coming up with Al Madrigal solutions to this. <laughs> we know that our friend, Daily Show contributor and brilliant stand-up comic Al Madrigal would come up with a complicated and vindictive scheme to solve this and all other domestic problems. Okay, here's something from Hunter. 
My name is Hunter. I'm 13, and I live in Minnetrista, Minnesota. I'm in the midst of writing my first fantasy novel. The title is Alex Venenzula, The Lost Treaty. It's a story about a prince of a kingdom in a faraway nation whose father had vanquished the evil humanoid Halitrone that attempted to defeat the people of Selexalair. Selexalair. May I just say, uh, I know you have some more to go here, but if the question is... Will you adopt me, John Hodgman? The answer is yes. <laughs> I go on. I also want to. I want to apologize to Hunter if I mispronounced any of the uh, words that he's made up. He did not include a pronunciation key. Oh, um, okay. But I just did my best. Selexelser. Selexelser. I spent many days typing out my. I spent the many one. Days. The one reason I hesitate to adopt you, Hunter, is that you did not include a pronunciation guide, glossary, and map. <laughs> So I'm not sure that you're my kind of son, but let's go on and maybe maybe I'll change my mind. I'd like to read the Alex Venenzula source book and encyclopedia, a guide to the world of Alex Venenzula, including the Lost Treaty, but not limited to the Lost Treaty. I spend many days typing out my story. I find it easier to get it out directly into my computer, not copying it from a notebook. But I've got one problem. When I have my creative juices flowing at night and I'm typing like crazy, my dad comes in and tells me to turn it off at 10. I'm homeschooled with no real need to get up early. I might be an author or a screenwriter when I grow up, and my dad doesn't seem to care. Please tell him to let me stay up until 11, for Alex Venenzula's sake. P.S. On April 1st, not a joke, keep your eye out for Alex Venenzula, The Lost Treaty at Amazon.com. I think that's oh. a permissible instance of buzz marketing. He snuck it in there. He snuck yeah. it in there. Yes, I think that that's permissible. I allow it. What do you think, 11 o'clock? Um, well, I am not your dad yet, Hunter. <laughs> not until you've been emancipated, then unmancipated. <laughs> I, uh, I think that, the, you know, but I have a, I have a 14-year-old child. And I would not like it if she were staying up to 11 o'clock routinely. Now, I know that she is doing this anyway, even though I, I don't like it. I know she routinely stays up to 11 o'clock watching Parks and Recreation on her computer. That's a very good thing to be doing. Well, you know, and it's one of these things where... If there had been computers in 1994 when I was 13 years old, you know I would have stayed up till 11 o'clock watching news radio on my computer. Of course. <sighs> the Parks and Recreation of the 90s is its new slogan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, news radio is a spectacular television It's so show. great. It's one of the best. Yeah, it's just and wonderful. I have to say I'm, gr- I'm grateful to my daughter for watching all seven seasons of Parks and Recreation well into the, the late at night times, because obviously I was a fan of Parks and Rec when it was on, but I, I was by no means a completist and I had not seen, there were so many episodes I had not seen until my daughter said, oh no, you have, we have to sit down and watch them all together in order. And it's just been such a spectacular experience for the both of us. It's a really great show and has some adult themes, but its heart is in the right place, of course. So, but this is one of those things where as a dad, I have to side with the dad. I think that 13 years old, you should not be staying up until 11 o'clock. Well, 
I just remembered that you're homeschooled, so it doesn't matter what time you wake up in the morning. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that even if you're homeschooled, you you ought to you ought to try to keep regular hours for until until you're 16 and your brain goes insane. What about 11? He goes want. to bed at 11. He gets up at eight or seven thirty. That seems reasonable to me. That's eight and a half, eight and a half to nine hours of sleep. That's probably more in tune with his natural body clock as a teen. The beauty of homeschooling, and this is why homeschooled kids are always so, um, so smart. You know, but they're, they're, I mean, why in my experience, homeschooled kids tend to be, and, and both of my kids go to regular school, you know, regular state schools, good state schools here in the, in the region. Uh, and they're very smart and inquisitive and curious and lovely in their own ways. But it's like homeschooled kids, they, they, they almost vibrate and shine with precocious intellectual energy. And one of the nice things about being homeschooled is uh, your teachers, who are your parents, love you and are very inclined to tolerate whatever your eccentricities might be. Uh, rather than force you into a kind of social norm, which by necessity, uh, regular m- schools with other humans and teachers who maybe appreciate you but do not love you because they did not give birth to you, don't allow. And so uh, I think that w- while on the one hand, uh, tolerating and encouraging the independent uh, passions of every individual student is lovely, tolerating every eccentricity is disruptive and not necessarily a good um a a great preparation for a broader world full of people who are not your parents who don't care about you my brothers were homeschooled my youngest brother who was homeschooled from kindergarten through middle school and then went to public arts high school for uh high school which led him to zero additional conformity he lives in Chicago, and I'm pretty sure what he does is he just sits around the house listening to Sparks and petting his hairless cats. Ha! I didn't know how that sentence could get any better or come to a grander conclusion. But when you brought in Sphinx cats, it's a Sphinx cat, right, that has no hairs? Sure, not I don't a, know. I not a single the, hair? I've seen some Facebook pictures of them sitting on top of his head. Yeah. I love you, Brendan. <laughs> I love you too, Brendan. I, I love you too, Hunter. Maybe just out of a kind of mean-spirited dadness, uh, I'm going to have to side with dad on this one and, and say, you know what? You, you're you a wonderful kid, but you but you don't get everything you want just yet, and you really should be in bed by 11. Uh, don't be typing out your story, and don't have screens after 10 p.m. I mean, this is something that I say is true for all grown-ups and adults because those screens shining lights in your eyes, they it's different than if you're writing in a notebook. Uh, screens shining in your eyes wake up parts of your brain and especially if you are doing any kind of surfing of any kind, uh, they, they sort of trigger uh, uh, predator instincts in your brain where you, you, you're awake and you're trying to find the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But even just typing into a screen, I think it's not it's not good for your sleep cycle to be doing that late at night. I'm trying to not do it myself, Hunter. And I, I, I think in that case, I would say 
if you talk to your dad about maybe staying up till 1030, so long as you're writing in a notebook with a flashlight or whatever, maybe he'll relent. But I, as I am not, as I have not adopted you and just, did his dad have anything to say about this? Yeah, he said, I love this kid's passion, though the passion also comes out verbally when I hold to what I think is an already pretty gracious bedtime. I trust your judgment. Yeah, I got to side with dad. 10, 10 o'clock, shut off the computer. Doesn't matter what fantasy novel you're working on. I think that's a reasonable thing to ask of a 13-year-old. And then, of course, you just sneak out a, you know, a flashlight and a pad and pencil or whatever, and you just do it the old-fashioned way under the covers. I'm talking about, when I say do it, yeah, when I say do it the old-fashioned way under the covers, I am talking about writing your fantasy novel specifically. Alex Venenzula, The Lost Treaty, available April 1st at Amazon.com. Hello, I'm your Judge John Hodgman. The Judge John Hodgman podcast is brought to you every week by you, our members, of course. Thank you so much for your support of this podcast and all of your favorite podcasts at MaximumFun.org, and they are all your favorites. If you want to join the many member supporters of this podcast and this network, boy, oh boy, that would be fantastic. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash join. The Judge John Hodgman podcast is also brought to you this week by Aura. A-U-R-A. It's a simple but meaningful gift that you can give your mom or your dad or your step-grandparent or your uncle or your friend or anyone that you want to keep connected in your life who might not live near you. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things that those friends can't be there for, from family vacations to grandkids' graduation to whatever. I have one of these, and I got one for my dad, and I got one for my mother-in-law, and it's amazing. We look at the photos all day long, and we're able to easily update their Aura frames so they see all the latest pictures from our lives as well. It comes with unlimited storage, simple controls on the frame, you can upload as many photos as you want, and your mom or your dad or your stepdad or your stepmom or your friend or whatever can pick the perfect one. And it takes only about two minutes to set up. Seriously. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, uh, The Strategist, and Wired Magazine. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. For a limited time, listeners can get $20 off their best-selling frame with code HODGMAN. That's A-U-R-A frames.com, promo code Hodgman. Terms and conditions apply. The Judge John Hodgman podcast is also brought to you this week by Babbel. Okay, it's 2024, 2024. Oh, if hindsight were 2020, I, I don't know what I would have done differently. All I know is that I'm taking every day in this year and trying to get better a little bit every day. That's what you do. That's the way progress is made, step by step, day by day, bird by bird. And that's the way it is when you're learning anything, especially a new language with Babbel. And if Babbel can help you start speaking language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in the rest of this whole year. Don't pay hundreds of dollars to private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts, real human beings to help you start speaking a new language in as little as one, two, three weeks. Studies from Michigan State University, Yale University, and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. 
And that's not just the Yale football team putting their thumb on the scale because they love learning Indonesian from Babbel. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Take that, Yale, I guess. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but this is only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Hodgman. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Here's something from Richard. In a few cases, you've expressed your views on tipping at restaurants. There's a restaurant I often call to place an order for takeout. When I pick up my order, I assume the receipt I'm given is the same as the one given to dine-in guests, in that there is a line at the bottom of the receipt to add a tip when I pay with a credit card. I'd never thought of tipping when getting takeout until I was presented with this receipt. How do you rule on tipping for takeout? I do not tip for takeout. Uh, Mm. uh, uh, Mm. How about that? Hmm. And I am I am a very generous tipper, as you know, and I and I guess I suppose if there were a tip jar there, I might want to put a dollar in there or whatever. I certainly tip for delivery because as far as I'm concerned, driving around on a bicycle or a moped, uh, no matter what the conditions are, whether wet or cold nor or sleet or hail. Uh, all night long bringing food to people is a pretty awful job and certainly as deserving as serving a party of four in a nice restaurant. But tipping is for service. Well, if they have a line there for tipping, and I'm confident that they are pooling those tips and tipping them out to the bus staff and the wait staff I might add, I might add, you know what, I, I, I might add 10% in that case, but I wouldn't, but that's where, that's where I think I would draw the line. Well, there's a couple of considerations. I think you hit on the fact that, uh, you know, tips partly go to wait staff for table service, but they partly also go to other service employees in the restaurant, including behind the scenes ones whose work is exactly the same with takeout and uh, uh, with table service. 
And um, uh, also, a server often does a significant amount of work preparing a takeout order. Um, mm -hmm. And so the ge the general consensus that I've heard seems to be you're you're totally not required to tip for takeout. Um, it's not a absolute social obligation, but a ten percent tip it would be a nice thing to do. And I have personally found, you know, there's a pizzeria, and I don't eat a lot of takeout, but there's a pizzeria in my neighborhood uh, called Fullieros, and um, we occasionally order pizza from there. They don't deliver, so I go pick it up, and um, I found that I, if I tip ten percent, uh, they are just they're just very grateful, and I'm like, oh right, I like these people, um, and I'm a regular customer here, and oh I would, yeah, I, and I would like to uh, recognize what a nice job they do and how nice they are to me. <laughs> if you're a re and if, if if it's a neighborhood place and you're a regular customer, I mean it, it's not just it's not altruism. Tipping is and an ensures that they remember that you are part of their world and you are glad to be, and you are glad that they are part of your world as well. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a gesture that makes everyone feel good. So why not do it? And I'm, I'm glad you gave me that chance to come around to the correct answer, bailiff Jesse. Sometimes I don't, I don't get it a hundred percent right out of the gate. And also I changed my mind. Hunter, you can now stay up till 2 AM, 2 AM. It's uh, helping people remember that uh, you're part of their world is a really important, uh, really important etiquette um issue it's what i call the little mermaid principle wow <laughs> this is so whoa. far to go whoa for what amounted to an illusion from a whoa. song for the little from the little mermaid that that truly was a journey here's something from liz my husband and i disagree about toilet seat etiquette i say he should put the seat down it's courteous, it prevents me from sitting on the bare rim in the middle of the night, and it's used that way the majority of the time, since I always sit, and he does at least part of the time. You mean sometimes he, he poops standing drift. up? <laughs> sometimes he poops standing up? Since our daughter was born, he's now outnumbered by sitters. My husband says this is sexist, that if he has to put the seat down, then everyone in the house should be required to put the full lid down after every use. I request that the judge issue an injunction requiring my husband to lower the toilet seat. If we have really made it through the five years or whatever of Judge John Hodgman that we've done without addressing this question, it is sincerely a miracle, and I think we should consider never addressing it. You mean just... I mean, Leaving it a lost treasure just beyond our audience's grasp. I think everyone knows what the correct answer is in this case. Yeah, take out your toilets. Replace Get, them. Dig a hole a, outside. No, take out your, your traditional northern European toilets and replace them with traditional Italian poop holes. Do you know what I'm talking about, Jesse? Have you traveled through Italy? I've not traveled through Italy, but uh, I encountered one or two poop holes uh, in Japan. As a Oh, kid. okay. Oh, yeah, but there they're heated, right? They <laughs> are. <laughs> oh, man, Joe Tajman. My wife got me one of those uh, special Japanese toilet seats. Mm -hmm. What a luxury. Oh, right, because is it heated and does it play music? Does it, it play Little Mermaid songs? It doesn't play, uh, it doesn't play music, but it's uh -huh. heated and it squirts warm water. Oh, where does it squirt it? Wherever you need to be clean, Joe Tajman. Whoa, what? And it has a blow dryer. And this is an addition. You know, the Japanese culture, bathroom culture is legendary for incredibly uh, elaborate electronic doodads on the toilet. 
But in any case, um, we all know what the answer is with regard to putting the seat down on the toilet, and it is quite a far stretch to bring sexism into it, and this sounds to me like one of the parties in this marriage is being purposely provocative, and I, in in order to honor your desire, Jesse, that we never answer this question, I will leave it there. I'm sure all right-thinking people understand what I'm saying. Here's something uh, in the follow-up department, uh, somebody who had previously sent in a docket-clearing question, Dan. Last year, I asked if I was allowed to continue to do my fart art projects. Dan, I remember you. Go on. Would you say these are fart art projects or fart art projects? I'm trying to remember exactly what form his fart art took. I, I think it was a little lame. And I asked him to kick it up a notch. That's right. Wasn't he, wasn't he, leave, wasn't he leaving posters around or something? He had a rubber stamp of some kind that said fart on it, and he was just stamping fart on stuff. Oh, okay, yeah. So he was just defacing things. Yeah, okay. With the word fart. Gotcha. And you said you should up his game. Yeah, like if he really wants to claim to be an artist, maybe he should try making art instead of just f- stamping the word fart on stuff. Okay. <laughs> an interesting an interesting approach in the 21st century. Not a lot of people uh, think of art as something you make, more of something you steal and repurpose. But go on. Fair enough. Okay, so Dan says, I took what you and Jesse said to heart about upping my fart artwork game and wanted to share some of my new pieces. I've created a vinyl decal of an Icelandic aphorism that translates to every man loves the smell of his own farts. He's shared a picture uh, of it with us that uh, we'll post on the website. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also made a stencil to be used with spray chalk to indicate no fart zones on the sidewalk. I replaced my bathroom exhaust fan cover with one that reads, farts this way. And although unintentional, I believe that my fart masterpiece is that I got you and Jesse to say the word fart a combined total of 19 times. I hope that you find my new works have merit and I am the world's greatest fart-themed artist. I have attached photos. Um, it is a pretty, pretty good stencil. Well, here's what I like about what he's doing. Uh, he's gone from... He has a commitment to theme. <laughs> yes. And he's gone from defacing property that is not his and public property that other people want to enjoy without his dumb ideas stamped all over them uh, to doing the same, but in an impermanent, easy to clean manner. I don't, I don't, I've never heard of spray chalk before. I find it to be a very interesting product if it is what I imagine it to be, which is essentially chalk and a spray can so that it could be washed away with water, for example. And so he made this stencil that says, no fart zone with spray chalk, and it kind of looks like graffiti art, but it's not going to bother anybody. Uh, they'll just wash it away because there is absolutely no need for it to be permanent because it's not beautiful or interesting. It's dumb. And I am a little bit more, <laughs> I am a little bit more impressed by the Icelandic aphorism, every man loves the smell of his own farts. As usual, the Icelanders are wrong. Uh, I know from personal experience. But it is. <laughs> But this, but this decal that he has made, uh, which and I don't speak Icelandic, but I'm going to guess it's pronounced Ulum Munum Finst Sin Eigen 
is... Uh, With all due apologies to longtime Max Funster, Ari from Iceland. Oh, I'm sorry, Ari. Uh, and if you're listening to this, would you please call and let us know how to pronounce this Icelandic phrase, every man loves his own farts, and I'd love to include it in the podcast. I'm just taking a guess. And I, and I, and I like his choice of font. There's no serif. Um, it looks pretty cool. And it's a, it's a provocative little bit of weird text. And I think that it, it tempts you to look it up or to hold up one of those, hold up your phone with that app that automatically translates foreign languages in real time. And then you would learn that what it says is every man loves the smell of his own farts and you would feel like a real dummy for wasting that time. I guess what I'm saying is that while your execution has absolutely improved and shows real imagination, um, I don't think this is interesting to humans. And uh, I don't like that you measure your success by how many times you trick us into saying fart because that kind of mischief is designed solely to draw attention to yourself rather than to provoke a thought or an idea or a moment of beauty in a world that needs those things. This seems to me like an intention-getting technique more than a work of true, even whimsy. And so, Dan, a.k.a. Fartsy, I am glad that you filled us in and I like your stencil making and I think you've got some interesting applications of your idea, but your idea at its heart is dumb. That is what I say as a judge of your artwork. You may disagree. I, you know, you know what it is? I don't know fart, but I know what I like. That was a long, a long road to get to that line. It's a whole, it's a whole new world. Uh, is that is that the Aladdin principle, yeah. a corollary principle to the Little Mermaid principle? Oh, a whole new world! Oh, a whole new world! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Morrissey. That's been this week's episode of the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Our producer is Julia Smith. Editor is Mark McConville. Uh, <laughs> How soon Judge is Hodgman, now? <laughs> How can you say I go about things the wrong way? I am human and I need to be loved just like everybody else does. You know, that's a terrible Morrissey impersonation, and but still one of my favorite songs. And it's like, you know, how could a how could how could they have been making songs for teenagers for so long? And and not gotten that one out the first year because that is the that is the definition of a song for teenage boys or girls. So amazing! I think it took them so long to get to that piece of teenage brain crack. Love it. I think we should have Dana Gould of the Dana Gould Hour podcast on the show sometime. You guys can have a Morrissey off, and we can have it judged by Morrissey superfan and brilliant stand-up comedian April Richardson, who I think follows Morrissey on tour when he's in the United States. I'm, I, 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 cede, I cede victory automatically to Dana Gould. No, there are very yeah, few uh, Im- impressionists who are as good as Dana at everything. Hey, Judge Hodgman, guess what? Wait, wait no, let me guess. The Max Fun Drive is just around the corner? Yeah, you got it, buddy. Yay! It's the best two weeks in podcasting. We're pulling out all of the stops. Uh, You can support 
Judge John Hodgman and all of Maximum Fun sh- shows directly. Uh, starting March 14th, there are going to be amazing prizes. All you have to do is go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. It is that simple. And once again, for donors at the leadership level, I will personally mispronounce your name on my Instagram account. So... Keep that in mind as we go into Max Fun Drive. It all starts March 14th, runs for two weeks, and we're going to have a good time together. You know, somebody somebody posted on the Flop House, you know, Flop the Flop House, our uh, sister program, has a wonderful whoa, Facebook group. Whoa, 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 whoa. The Flop House Sorry. is our sister program now? I, I know you have some problems with Elliot Kalin. <laughs> our sister program now. The same. Like, we're the same. We're the same. Like, Sister Cities? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, Sure. Maybe, maybe they're maybe <laughs> like they're, Bakersfield and Kyoto. Maybe they're. I would say they're our despised younger brother program. <laughs> Get out of my room, Flophouse. Anyway, somebody posted really generously to remember that the Max Fund Drive was coming up and that you should donate to support Maximum Fun. And I was so grateful to them. And I also added, and to support your favorite podcasters specifically. Like one of the special things about Max Fund is that your donations really do go directly to support the shows. Um, uh, you know, this isn't something where like right. uh, all the money comes into a big slush fund for me, and then I decide to give it out as according to my whims. Right. Uh, it really goes straight to the shows that you listen to. We ask you what shows you listen to and send them the money. Yeah, it's it's not like it's not it's not like uh, when you donate to public radio, and yeah. uh, and you know like ninety five ninety five cents of every dollar goes to Sylvia Pajoli's scarf fund. Anyway, March March 14th is when the Max Fund Drive starts. We hope you'll support us uh, on social media, in real life, and by donating at MaximumFund.org slash donate. We'll talk to you next time on the Judge John Hodgman Podcast. This is Alex Venenzula. MaximumFund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.